your longing by where you put your money or where you put your time or how you spend your energy, what would most people say is the thing that you value most in life? What is your greatest wish? Is it for more money? More things? Uh Is it for a longer vacation? A new wardrobe? Or maybe for you it's simpler things, more basic things like better behaved children that could just come to church and sit and be quiet. What is it that you wish for in life? If you could go to God Almighty, the great and mighty powerful eyes of the whole universe, and you could ask for one thing that would be a guaranteed given. If you could ask God one thing, and He would promise you that that one thing, I will give you no matter what. What would you wish for? What is your deepest longing in life? Um, Some people would wish for more money because they think that's going to give them happiness. For some other people, they would wish for things a little bit more ethereal, like um, they would wish for peace or perhaps uh, happiness or fulfillment. Um, We all tend to look at other people And we see things in other people that make us want things, long for things, wish for things. We look at other people and we measure our success, our happiness, based upon how we see them. And so we say things like, um, I wish my husband would be more like, and you name it, or Why can't my wife just be? And we measure their marriage, their relationship. And we think, you know, they seem to have the perfect family. They have a great marriage and a good job. And they have pretty much anything they want. They seem happy. And their children seem happy and well-dressed and fairly well-behaved. They all seem to love God Why can't my family be like them? And we measure our lives, our happiness, our sense of fulfillment from those things. But here is my premise. I believe that if we ever went a little bit deeper, if we ever really thought about what matters in life, based upon not the temporary things we're living in right now, the situations we find ourselves in, but if we could project ourselves forward to the end of our lives, what is it that we would wish for? What would we long for? Um, My father was one of the hardest working men that I know. And again, that's not to diminish any other man in this house who works hard or any other woman who works hard. But my father was just a hard worker. He he found uh, fulfillment and joy in work. He worked really three jobs, if you think about it, probably more. But one of the jobs that he worked uh, was at a factory, a machine shop in Rochester called Gleason. Some of you might have heard of it. He worked there from the time he was a young guy until his older age. Uh, He also had a small, what we would call now a mom-and-pop farm. He worked hard, both of those. He also was a father. He also was a husband. uh, And then later in life, he came to love God. But I can remember specifically sitting at the table with him towards the end of his life. He only had at that point weeks to live. 
And I can remember staring at him at one point and just seeing him. He, he was uh, uh, struggling even at that age uh, and at that time in life with cigarettes. So he would smoke, chain smoke. Uh, he would have two or three, four lit cigarettes in the ashtray and another one in his hand the whole time. But I can remember thinking, if Dad could wish for anything, I guarantee it wouldn't be that he could have put more time in at Gleason's Works. Or he could have planted more potatoes. I don't think any of that stuff really mattered to him anymore. I think what he cared about was the state of his own soul. That he would know something of wholeness on the inside as he was getting ready to meet his God. None of us wants to get so caught up in the world system that we measure ourselves by those things. In fact, I believe all of us have what I call uh, two things in our lives. We have what I call a false self. That's the image we try to convey to people. And then we have a true self that's on the inside. It's how we really feel, what we really think about ourselves and about life. And I want to suggest to you this morning as we're getting into this that God doesn't play the pretend game that some people play. God has no grace for the pretend life that you portray in front of people. God only has the grace for real you, your true self, that which is really inside. The psalmist David said in Psalm 42, 7, deep calls unto deep. God doesn't deal with just surface stuff. I am more and more convinced that our soul's health is what makes life on earth either heaven or hell. How we are inside, balanced, is what actually helps us to live life with some level of happiness. If we ignore that reality, we fall into the world system of dog-eat-dog and climb-the-ladder success. And unfortunately, I have done so many funerals in my life where I have found that people who have been climbing the ladder of success all of their life only later in life discover that the ladder was leaning against the wrong building the whole time. And they were getting nowhere fast. And it didn't really matter. So all of your money, maybe you guys have some good money. God bless you. Maybe you're really strong. You've been working out and you've you got some muscles now. Good. God bless you. Maybe you've got a full head of hair, and you're happy about it. Good for you. But in the end, those things are not going to bring you true happiness or true fulfillment. It's only the state of your inner life, your soul. Last week, we began to look at this whole idea of soul care, and what we called, uh, we actually borrowed the, the title from a book written by a guy who is a British psychiatrist, uh, his name is Lake, and then by a theologian by the name of Emil Bruner. And it's called The Cycle of Grace. It's about our soul. And we discovered that they looked at the life of people around them who were in ministry and found that a lot of people, whether in ministry or not, burned out way too early. And then they looked at Jesus' life and they said, Jesus went through more stressors in life than anybody else ever of all time and yet he never burned out, he never quit, he never gave up. What is it that Jesus had that we need? And we looked at this thing called the cycle of grace, and we saw that Jesus had an ebb and a flow to his life. He had a balance. He had an input and an output that came into his life. Things that went in richly, 
And then out of that richness that had been put into him, he had some things that he was able to give. So what I'd like you to do is quickly turn to Mark 1. I want to give you just a brief example of how this worked in Jesus' life. Mark chapter 1. So this is towards the beginning of his ministry. And I want you to see the cycle of grace if you can. Okay, we'll put it up on the screens for those of you that don't have your Bibles with you, either by phone or text. Mark chapter 1 and verse 29. Follow along if you would. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother, that's Simon's mother-in-law, lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. And because for this purpose I have come forth, and he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Now, as I read that passage, did you see something of a cycle of grace there? Where does he start? Where does the passage start? Where was Jesus found? In the synagogue. And out of that experience of God's presence there, so there's an inflow that happens as he went into church, because synagogue's just another word for church. As he came out of church, he had something that he had received that he could then give out. He gave out first to Peter's mother-in-law. Then he gave to many others who came who were sick and demonized, that were being influenced by the enemy. But then what does he do the next morning? He goes out and he prays. So that it can be a fresh Inflow. So there's this inflow that comes and then an outflow that happens in the life of Jesus. And last week we like looked at the very first inflow that I believe is the most important for all of us, which has to do with we need to base our lives upon the acceptance of the Father. That's our sense of identity. Out of that sense of identity ought to come all that we do in life. We don't flow out of other things. We flow out of who God says we are. And in Ephesians chapter 1, he says you are chosen, you are adopted, and you are accepted in the beloved. You are favored children of the Most High God. So that what the psalmist says, if God be for you, who can be against you? In other words, what he's saying is, it doesn't matter what other people say, it matters what the Father says about you. Other people can think ill of you. Other people can tear you down. Other people can say things about you. But in the end, what really matters is, what is God's judgment about you? And he says he has accepted you. He has made you acceptable in him. And 
By the way, the first time Jesus heard this was back at his baptism when the scripture says John the Baptist baptized him to fulfill all righteousness. And when he came up, the Holy Spirit descended and a voice spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that happens before he does any miracles, before he heals anybody, before he raises anybody from the dead, before he does any teaching. He already had the Father's acceptance. So the first item that you want to see in this cycle of grace is that we need to start from a foundation of the acceptance of the Father. That is our clear sense of identity. Now, as I say even those words, I have no doubt that for most of you, you would nod your head and agree and say, yeah, that, that's true, that's what we need. But the truth is that most of us tend to measure ourselves by our achievements, by how much we produce, what we have done with our lives that we have to show for us. I mean, I don't know how many of you guys go to cemeteries. Any of you guys ever just go to cemeteries to visit? They're amazing places. Um, we were recently at a cemetery uh, in Lima looking at Karen's uh, father's grave. And next to it is a gravestone. And on the gravestone, they have all of these matchbox cars. I mean, really, I mean, you ask him, I mean, it's covered. The, the gravestone itself, the foundation around it, it's covered. Because apparently that was important to this guy. Matchbox cars. I got to tell you, I, I really don't want matchbox cars on my cemetery site. I really don't. I don't want pictures of me. If I want anything to be said at all, I want it to be said, he was loved of God and loved God. And that's enough. Because the truth is, when you boil everything down, isn't that all that really matters? That you're loved of God and you love God back. John, the beloved disciple, puts it this way. We love because he first loved. That's what acceptance is about. You know, I, I know too many people, maybe you do too, who have worked for 20, 30 years. My own father, Worked for over 30 years at Gleason's Works. They got a new owner, and they decided we could hire two young people to do my father's job, and together we would have to pay those two younger people less than what we have to pay this old guy. So they laid my dad off after, I think it was 32 years or 36 years. I have them both in my mind. After 30-plus years, they laid him off. And I know of other people just like that. I know of a lady that was in this church that worked faithfully at a shop downtown for years and years and years. And then just suddenly they laid her off. No money, no pension, no nothing. What is it that you're living your life for? Is it going to last? Because ultimately there's going to come somebody along who's smarter than you, faster than you, that can produce more. And the company's going to say, I guess we'll take them because they do more for us. It's all about what have you done for me lately. Um, there's a little chart that I use sometimes with leaders. If you could put that up, Kathy. Um, this chart kind of, if you think of your life as like an iceberg, uh, th this uh, glacial thing, what they suggest is that something like 80 plus percent of the iceberg is actually below the surface. And what you see up at the top is really a small part of it. And think of the iceberg as like your life. And there are different things that we go through in life. 
And, and the first thing we put at top, and I, I make them all match just because that way they have the same letters. The first one I call competency at the top, competency. Competency is where you show what you can do. It's what you're good at, and, and it's what makes you look good to people around you. So competency is all about looking good. That's where it comes in. So if you're looking at it on your paper, look to your uh, top of your life. That's what everybody sees is what you look good at. The second thing is your calling. It's kind of like I have a purpose in life. And that calling is what makes me feel good inside. This is, it's like you can't wait until you can be married so that you can say I'm now married. You can't wait until you have a baby so you can now say you're a parent. So it makes you feel good about life until you, all of a sudden you realize there's a responsibility with all of that. But the upper layer has to do with your competency and your calling. That which makes you look good and that which makes you feel good. But there's a whole lot more below the surface that is really more important. The next thing I call core. Or character, rather. Character. Character is about being good. It's where you allow God to begin to work something of His DNA into you. It's where your life begins to change. Where you come to grips with, you've got problems. You've got stuff in your life that you need to have God work on inside of you. And so God begins to change your character until you become more and more like Jesus. You look like Him. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans that that's the point of it. He has ordained, preordained, that we would all become conformed to the image of Christ. That's what character is about. And then finally, the last one is the core of our being. By the way, character has to do with being good. The last part is our core, which has to do with actually being good. It's not just be good, it's we are good. Because that's who God has made us. You don't have to try anymore. It's not like you have to work hard at it. This is who you are. God has so changed you into his image that that emanates out of you. But what I want you to catch is that the world only looks at the top. They only look at what you do. They only care about what your job is. So that when you're introduced to people, I have people today. I mean, I have people that I love dearly. They're friends of mine, stuff like that. But when you call them, they answer their phone with their title. Hi, I'm Reverend so-and-so. Or if you want to be really fancy, I am the most Reverend so-and-so. I don't know what makes them most, more than everybody else, but apparently they are. You know, I find it interesting in the church that people are more concerned with titles than even sometimes out in the world. I go to a doctor. This is a person who studied a lot. They're smart. They know what they're doing. But they want you to call them by their name. But I have people in the church that you, can't, you have to call them head usher because that's their title. They're important. They're the head usher. And we want to measure ourselves by the top of stuff when really the core is where we know the Father's acceptance. It's where we know that God loves us. And that's enough. I make mistakes, I blow it, so do you. But the core of my being is, I am loved of God. I've been chosen by God. I still don't do things perfectly, neither do you. But I'm still loved by God. Having established that Jesus started with God's acceptance, I think then it's only fair for us to ask, what then? What's next? What follows in terms of the input into Christ's life that makes a difference? 
because even though you have heard at times, and all of us have, have felt the Father's love. We've been in a service, and maybe it's been in the midst of singing a song or even in the midst of preaching, something dawns on you. And you realize God is speaking directly to you about his love. And you feel it, and you're overwhelmed by that. But then the next day, you face real life. You get up, and things aren't going well. Maybe you got a flat tire. Or maybe the kids mess their bed in the night, and now you've got a huge disaster to clean up. Maybe you've lost your job. You're facing real life now. And it's easy for the feelings of love to feel diminished, to feel less. What do you do to keep that cycle of grace going? What do you do to keep the acceptance of the Father still resonating within your own life? Now, think of it kind of on a uh, very natural level. Um, God has created us in such a way that we have bodies. And these bodies need some things to survive. Um, we need food, we need liquids, water, we need air, and we even need some level of covering because the elements themselves, that very sun that we need in order to survive, can actually kill us. So we need some level of covering or uh, perhaps it might be clothing, you might say, some, some protective covering. So we need those things in our lives. But out of those things... Two of them you can't create. Water and air. That's something that God does for you. He provides that for you. So that's like the divine portion of it. But on the other side of it, we also need food and clothing. And those are things that you have a part of. So if you think about the cycle of grace, the first portion is kind of like the divine portion. That's something that only God can give. But the second thing that we need in our lives is something for which we also have some responsibility, tag-teaming, as it were, with God. It's not that we can do it separate from God. Because even uh, food. Okay, I need food to live, and that's something I have to prepare, but where am I going to get the food? If God were to dry up the water, if he were to ruin the soil, I would have no food. So God has to still create an environment whereby I can harvest the food and then cook the food, eat the food for my nourishment. So there has to be this kind of welding together of both the divine and the human that is involved in this. So that when you think about the cycle of grace, the first one, acceptance, has to do with just what God does. God says, I chose you. I like you. I accept you. And he gives us our sense of identity. But then we move on from there to something that is like the second stage in this cycle of grace. We go from acceptance, which is the pure inflow of God's grace, to the second part of it, which we call sustenance or sustaining grace. It's how we sustain the grace of God's acceptance in our lives. It's a blending of the human and the divine. The idea here is that Jesus had certain things that he did that enabled the grace of God to continue to be at work in his life, to be resident within him. Uh, some people call these um, means of grace. Other people call them uh, spiritual disciplines. 
whatever you want to call them, I don't care. They are a means of sustaining the grace of God that's in you. So what I want you to do is just take a moment. Just take a moment and think. I know you don't have to do that often on a Sunday morning. But as you think about Jesus' life, and Jesus is our model, our example. As you think about Jesus' life, take a moment and just think. What are some of the things that maybe you can remember from the Gospels that Jesus did that helped to sustain his sense of connection with the Father? his sense of acceptance, his sense of approval, his identity. What are some of the things that Jesus did on a regular basis that helped to keep the cycle of grace intact in his life? So, any thoughts on that? Yes. Okay, he only did what he saw his father do. Somebody else? I'm sorry, what did you say? Prayer. He prayed. Good. Prayed. What else? Fasted. Somebody else. I'm sorry, what? Solitude. He listened to the preachers in the synagogue. He went to church. Podcasts. Mm, Not so much. Healing, okay. What else? He obeyed. Anybody else? These are things that Jesus did that caused the grace that he had received in hearing the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. These are things that Jesus did that helped to hold him to that anchor. Uh, I just put down a couple. Uh, I put down, he prayed. Somebody said that. Uh, I said he had a circle of close friends. I think friendship was important to Jesus. He hung out with these people. He did life with these people. I think who your friends are matters because they help to sustain you or they can actually diminish something of the grace of God depending upon who you hang out with. They can rob you of grace. He had the 12 who went with him throughout his life. He shared everything with them. Uh, People either build or they actually undermine the grace of God in your life. So you ought to think about that in terms of who you're hanging out with. Uh, I have, he engaged in regular corporate worship in the synagogue. He went to church regularly. It says, as was his custom. That's not like once in every great while. It was his custom to go to the synagogue every Saturday. That's when he went. Um, I said, he fed his mind on Scripture. He knew the Word of God. He quoted it often. Even when he was tempted, his responses to the enemy was the Scripture. He enjoyed God's creation. He went up onto the mountaintops to pray. He could have prayed anywhere. Why did he go there? Because then he got alone. He had solitude. But he also was able to look around him in the midst of his time of prayer. He took long walks. I like that one. I mean, think about it. They didn't have cars back then. He walked from town to town. But you have to admit, even on those walks, how many, how many of you take walks? How many of you guys take walks sometimes? Some, isn't it amazing how, while you're on a walk, you can actually meet with God even there? Jesus did. Um, he, I love this one, he welcomed little children, and he spent a lot of time just hugging them. Children, do something of the grace of God in our souls. They're important. They're special. 
They, they, they have no artifice. They're just who they are. Doesn't matter where they are. You know, they come running into buds and they see you and they call you out loudly by name and everybody's looking around. It doesn't matter. They're just who they are. I think Jesus loved that. That's why he also said, if you want to enter the kingdom, if you want to be somebody of importance in the kingdom, become like a little child. And then this last one, you might not like this, you might not agree with me. That's okay, you can be wrong. He enjoyed meeting with and eating with non-religious people. I mean, think about what was said about him. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and people say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners. I think Jesus actually liked to hang out with people who weren't religious. i got to tell you, there is something um, refreshing about sitting at a table with people who are not regular church people, they're not Christians, and they, they don't measure every word, they just let it go. But if you listen through the vocabulary, which isn't always pleasant, if you listen through that, you can actually hear some amazing thoughts. and You, you come away saying, I'm really glad I was here for this conversation. I want to know how people really think and feel. And I think Jesus loved that. In Jesus' life, he had um, several levels of relationship. He had the crowds that were constantly pressing against him. And they wanted something of him. So they were making demands. They wanted food or they wanted healing. They wanted something. But you had the crowds. Then underneath the crowds, you had um, the 70. Remember when he sent the 70 out? These are people he spent time with, he trained, and then he released to do ministry. Then he had the 12. These were the people that he spent most of his time with. He, he lived with. They traveled together. They saw how he acted, what he said, how he handled pressured situations. These were people he spent a lot of time with. But even among the 12, there were three. Peter, James, and John. And they actually had some importance in his life. And then there was one. John, the beloved disciple who it says laid upon the chest of Christ. He had relationships within his life that helped to feed something inside of them. And so all of these are like, yes, you had another one. Faith? Is that what you, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Good, very good, thank you. So all of these that we've mentioned are like... Um, we call them spiritual disciplines, but when we say the word spiritual disciplines, like fasting, we think, oh, I don't want to fast, come on. Or, you know, God moves upon you to give something, you think, I worked hard for that money. And so sometimes your fleshly side can actually resist, even though they're good for us to do. Prayer, pray, read the Bible again. I've read the Bible once already. How many times do I got to read it? So these can be like spiritual disciplines that you treat as drudgery. But that's not how they're intended to be. They're intended to be things that are actually life-giving. So if you find, for example, that your Bible reading style is drudgery for you, maybe you need to find another way to do it. Every once in a while, I don't do it a lot because I like uh, actual translations. I like translations. Translations are where you go word for word or thought for thought. 
where they're translated from the original language to English. I like translations because they're a little bit more accurate. But every once in a while, just to mix things up, I will spend a year reading through the Bible in what's called a, um, a paraphrase. It's like somebody's way of saying the Scripture, but in their own language. It's just kind of unique to them, like the Message Bible or the Living Bible. Those are kind of like all paraphrases. And so every once in a while, you shake things up a little bit because you know God's big enough that he can use anything he wants to speak truth to you. So you shake it up a little. But these are not intended to be just drudgery. These are intended to be life-giving. So for me, for example, if uh, I want to recharge my batteries, so to speak, and that's really kind of the simple way of using this. If I want that, one of the things that's important to me that I have just discovered in my life that really does something inside of me, I love it. I honestly do. I feel peace. Is I like to be around water. I do. So like Karen and I, uh, just because of the situation we're in this year, uh, we're not going to be doing uh, a vacation this year. Just we cannot do it. So we said we're going to take a couple of days here or there when we get a chance, get somebody to watch your mom maybe, and we, we'll just go away. I, I don't mean overnight. I mean just for Saturday or something like that or Friday, whatever. And invariably, we went uh, just recently we had uh, a Saturday free, so we went to Canandaigua Lake. And I got to tell you, I love sitting on, they've got, I ha, how many of you have been to Canandaigua Lake? Okay, I don't, I'm not talking about the old days with Roseland. I mean now, now where everything has changed. It doesn't look like Roseland at all anymore, which is a really sad thing. But either way, it's a pretty lake. They've got swings. They've got swings. And I think that's like the coolest thing. You can sit and swing with your wife, so you're together. You don't even have to say a word. You just look. You look out at the water. You see the waves kind of lapping a little bit. You see people playing in the water. You see the boats, the sailboats and the big boats. And you think, man, there's like... 50, 60 boats lined up in a row right there, and they're all talking to one another. How is that? You know, what are you guys doing? I thought you're supposed to be out boating and doing stuff. But we sit in the water. And so Monday, we had a little bit extra free time. And Cameron said, what do you want to do? And I said, let's go back to Canandaigua. I like water. It's soothing. When we go on vacation, I want water. It's not because I want to be in the water. I just want to watch it. I want to listen to it. I love hearing the ocean. It's soothing to me. So when you think about these spiritual disciplines, think about it in that way. Maybe for you, it's not water. You don't care. But maybe for you, it's music. You love music. And music, maybe for you even, it doesn't matter. Classical music soothes you. It does something in you. It recharges something inside of you. Maybe for you, it's just hanging out with friends. That's where you get your energy, where you find yourself freshly connecting with God. Or maybe for you, it's not a bunch of friends. Maybe it's one friend. We can go out for a coffee and we can just be together. And I feel a fresh connection with God. Maybe it's a long hike. I don't know what it is for you. It doesn't matter. All I'm suggesting is Jesus had a pattern in his life. He first received the life of the Father in his acceptance. But from there, he actually took responsibility to do things that kept that sense of acceptance flowing in his life. The American uh, devotional writer, maybe some of you have heard of her, Letty Kalman, wrote about a traveler who was visiting Africa in order to take a safari. And so she hired some guides and some uh, carriers for the safari that they were going to take in Africa. And they set out their first date, and they made phenomenal time. 
she was so pleased. I mean, we're, we're doing great here. We're, we're ahead of schedule. But the next morning, when she got up and she was ready to leave after she ate breakfast, nobody was moving. All the carriers were sitting on the boxes and the guides were laying on the floor. And so finally she went to the guy that she had actually paid the most to kind of be in charge. And she went to him and she said, what's the deal? Why aren't they moving? I'm getting frustrated. And he said this. He says, on the first day, we traveled too far too fast. And now we must wait for our souls to catch up with our bodies. And I think sometimes we need to do that. We're so busy about life that sometimes you just need to stop to let your souls catch up to what God has said about you. I'm not talking about just laying in your bed because you're being lazy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about positioning yourself to receive freshly from God. His love, his approval, his acceptance. Uh, some of you guys know him. Um, he's one of the people that, he's written prolifically, but uh, several years ago, he was a well-known uh, worship leader, traveling the nations, teaching on worship, and then he ended up with a throat malady whereby he couldn't speak anymore. It was painful to speak at all. So when you do hear him speak, he speaks in a whisper with the mic right to his lips. Uh, Bob Sorge is his name. Bob uh, said this in one of his books, The Secrets of the Secret Place. He said, God's primary desire for your life, please hear the words, God's primary desire for your life is not that you would discover his will and walk in it. Okay, let me just say that again. God's primary desire for your life is not that you discover his will and walk in it. His primary desire is that you would draw near to him and come to know him. God wants to be known. And then he desires that from that knowing relationship, there comes a tender walking together in his purposes. In other words, what I said to you last week is God is more concerned with union than he is with obedience or holiness. Because if we can connect with God, that will happen automatically. You can't walk with God without being changed. He will change you. So sustaining grace means actively pursuing those activities necessary to keep faith alive and well in your life. Spiritual disciplines or means of sustaining grace are kind of like lifting the sails on your sailboat. God provides the wind, you put the sail up and you find out which way God's blowing and then you ride his wind. Um, I believe it's God's job to provide the burning bush in our lives. It's our job to go aside and see this bush which burns. What is God wanting to do? So my challenge to you this week is that you would take some time to think and pray about what are the things that God has built within you that actually helps to sustain grace? What are the things that you do or could do that actually would help you to become more and freshly aware of God's love for you? What is it? For you, it might be worship music. We talked to someone this week, Karen was talking to someone this week, who though perhaps they haven't been in church in a long, 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 long time. They love worship music and they listen to it all the time. Maybe for you it's music. Maybe for you it's friends. Maybe for you it's a long walk or mountains. I don't know. But what I'm asking you to do this week is to ask God to help you to come up with a list of it. 
even just two or three things that you do that actually makes you feel more aware of God's presence. Helps to sustain that work of grace of God in your life. And then take some time with that this week. Actually make time for that this week. Open up your schedule. Change your schedule. Let your souls catch up with your body. And you say, this is who I am. Not who they say I am. They say I'm a failure. I, I put up here once for you a long time ago a picture of myself, an outline, a silhouette. And in it, I wrote all the lies that had been spoken. Things that people had said over me. Liar, failure, stupid, never amount to anything. You could go on and on and on because they're all things that were said about me. But there comes a point where we have to say the voice of the Father is louder than those voices. And not only louder, he overrules them. And he actually silences them. That's what I'm talking about. So when you think about the cycle of grace, it starts with your acceptance by God. But then it also says, I'm willing to partner with God in order to keep that voice loud and clear in my soul. So that as you think about the iceberg, you say, I'm not going to worry so much about what's up at the top that everybody sees. I want to look a certain way. I want to appear a certain way. I mean, if you think about it, why do we lie? We lie to either look better than what we are or to get out of trouble. Both of them have to do with appearance. And so people live a life of lies. It's a pretend life. That's not who they really are. I don't want to judge people up there. I want to see who they are down deep in their soul. Soul health is what makes life on earth either heaven or hell. Would you stand with me? Find a way to allow God to minister a fresh touch of His grace. Now maybe for you, you, can, you think back and you remember. You remember that back in July of 2005, you went on a cruise to Alaska and that was like life impacting for you. It was wonderful just sitting there as the cruise ship went out and you loved every second of it. I'm not saying go take another cruise to Alaska. That's not what I'm saying. Think about what were the elements within it that actually made a difference for you. And then find time to do that. To find God in the midst of it. Find what He wants to say to you there. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank You that You, uh, you don't see as we see. Your Word says man looks on the outward. God looks on the inward. And you know our hearts. You know our desires. Lord, I'm asking that this week you would help every single one of us, myself included, to make time, not just to find time, but to make time for these sustaining means of grace, these spiritual disciplines, to somehow be at work within us that we could in a new and a fresh way, encounter you and to hear your voice. Thou art my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. To know that our identity is in you, not in how well we performed yesterday or today. It's in you. So Lord, I'm asking you to open our hearts and minds to how you created us, how you made us, and what actually does something in our own souls. For some, it's being in groups at parties. For others, it's being one-on-one -on -one or even being alone. 
Lord, help us to know what it is that you have created us for in terms of our own being and then to take action accordingly by your grace. It's always your grace. You provide it. We just walk into it and let you blow upon our sails. Lord, let our experiences be week be one of renewal in our own souls. We thank you, Father, for the cycle of grace and what you're going to do in us through that means. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to remind you just briefly that those of you that are parents, uh, if you want, one of you could go down and get your children and the other one could stay up here for the meeting or you both go get your kids, come right back up. But there's going to be a meeting here.